Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We got a fun episode for you guys, kind of a bonus episode. We don't usually do an episode on a Tuesday. That's true. This is a bonus Tuesday. It is a bonus Tuesday. So we have uh, Buzz Carpenter, the other half of his interview, yes. uh, coming right up for you. We don't really have anything else to to chat about ahead of time. We want to get right to it because I know... It's that- such a, a long but such a good interview that we split it up. Yep. But I mean, so a lot of times when we have interviews and it's super long, we're like, well, we'll just edit it down, boil it down. Yep. This, you too couldn't, good. couldn't boil anything too out. Too good. So, so super excited about it. We hope you guys enjoy the uh, the finale of the SR71 piece. We'll be back next week with the uh, with either the U2 or the F117A. I'm not sure which we're going to do next, but one of those is coming up next the week. The other two iconic Lockheed Martin Skunk Works planes. That's right. Now on to part two with Buzz Carpenter. Has there ever been anything else in your life that's ever given you even close to this type of experience? No. So you, do no, you miss it? it? Um, I do somewhat, but because people ask me, wouldn't you like to go? And I said, you know, that's a airplane for someone in their thirties, maybe their forties, because your, your reaction time has to be spot on. You have to be ready for whatever, because things could happen. That's why it took us a year to train an experienced pilot or navigator, because I was an instructor the last year and a half or so in the program. Because of the heat and unpredictability of how the heat can affect the airplane at times, you may very well have an emergency that nobody else has ever seen before. And you have to understand how the airplane is put together. I mean, the astronauts are the same thing. You know, look at Apollo 13. They're heading out there, and all of a sudden, one of the fuel cells blows up and goes, Oh, this didn't, we never had this in the simulator, <laughs> you know, what do, I, I, what do we do now? And you get people into it. Now, in our case, um, oftentimes it, you, it were just the two of you talking to each other until you got got whatever you had under the control, like the, what I was telling you about that on start. So I had seven in a row and uh, lost one of my hydraulic systems. And uh, this was over the, uh, along the DMZ in the um, South Korea. Uh, when it occurred. And it was so violent that what I needed to do, Chris, to stabilize the airplane was to fly it straight ahead. The rules of the day were, as they normally would, you cannot overfly North Korea. That is a that is a political violation. So I had to take the airplane into a turn, even though we were doing the 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 bouncing around because the inlets weren't working right. And uh, which aggravated and probably helped damage the airplane. I mean, the airplane was repairable, but I had ended up having to land at a U.S. Uh, air base in, in South Korea because um, by the time I, we got through with the seventh one, I could tell that the airplane wasn't it wasn't going to fly supersonically because it was just beating the daylights out of it. And I'd lo- we'd lost a hydraulic one of our main hydraulic systems. Um, but uh, we were greeted by the by the the general in charge of the base and said, "Okay, we heard you're coming in. What do you need?" Right. So I said, "I need a hangar to pull the uh, pull gotta, this." First of all, we got to hide this thing. <laughs> That's exactly right. Get it in the hangar. Close the doors. I want to get back to the navigation system. Sure, that sure. We got from the Brits. You had fifty nine stars in the catalog. So on a clear day, you pull out of the hangar, and within two minutes, this sensor that was developed by the British, it doesn't see the blue sky. It looks through the blue sky and locks on the stars. So we guaranteed the president. It's got to be some sort of infrared thing then, if it can see right through the blue sky and see the stars. You know, it's not using the visible light spectrum. It must be doing something else. It has a, some atomic materials in it, radioactive materials, because when the airplanes were, were sent to museums, the navigation system had that there was uh, people had to come in and remove the radioactive materials. So however it works. But anyway, that's one of those things you're talking about. I don't know how it works. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's right. I just know it works. And it was a great system. It rarely failed. And uh, we we basically guaranteed the president 300 feet. Anywhere in the world traveling at 2,200 miles an hour. Because uh, it gets back to what you're talking about. You're traveling at those speeds, 30 to 35 miles a minute. Um, you're not reading a map. I mean, you've got a, a moving map projector 
it's telling you what's coming up on your turn, the timing and fuel and things like that. But you're not focused necessarily exactly where I am right now. Uh, I'm thinking about where am I going and do I have a turn coming up or whatever, but very accurate system. And unlike airplanes at that time, because they had inertial guidance systems, they would drift on you, even the best of them. This system, because it had the start tracking, would stay pretty much locked on. Now, when you came down through the weather and it couldn't see the stars, yeah, the inertial system was was really pretty good. And then as you climb back up, as soon as it could see a clear sky that it didn't have weather, it would uh, update. And I don't think I probably the largest uh, corrections I would see is maybe uh, five, six hundred feet, something like that. I mean, it was was very accurate. The scale of that is incredible when you're thinking about how fast you're moving. When you're going 35 miles a minute and you're within several hundred feet of where you're supposed to be, that (laughs) that variation is so small. It's about 3,500 feet per second. And so you're looking at a a very small uh, being off. and, And the wonderful thing is it wasn't the kind of system that would degrade. I've I had at least on one occasion taking off from Okinawa, Japan, I was passing through 5,000 feet climbing up and all of a sudden my attitude indicator tumbled, which told me our navigation system wasn't, wasn't working very well or my gauge or my instrument had failed. And the navigator piped up immediately says, well, it says we're at the South Pole. And I said, <laughs> okay, <laughs> looks like this mission is over with. And he says, oh, you'll like the update. We're now at the North Pole. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stop by and see Santa Claus. Yeah. So there was no doubt that we weren't going anywhere um, because earlier airplanes, reconnaissance, air, all kinds of airplanes, you know, have drifted because people didn't realize that, in fact, the navigation, the inertial system uh, was no longer giving them an accurate position. And that wasn't the case in the SR. So what was your, when you think back of all of your missions, not even on an SR, but anything that you flew, anything, what is your most memorable mission that you ever flew? It's probably back to the SR. Um, I was lucky enough, even as being the junior crew to fly that uh, crisis mission for President Carter. Um, and it was and when just, you mean crisis mission, what do you mean? Is that, are we talking about Iran? No, no it was uh, the Saudis and the Yemenis were fighting. Okay, And uh, they were trying to figure out a way, obviously, to get them to stop. And this was every month, all the services that they submit, the reconnaissance one, there's a there's a book that goes through Washington. It's checked by the State Department, by CIA, by by all kinds of people, all the services. These are the missions we're going to fly for routine intelligence collection and, you know, patrols like that. Well, there's always contingencies they, you can't predict, you know, what's going to necessarily happen. In this case, um, we were, when you flew your first mission, training mission as a crew, you then, mockery, because that's what you did, uh, you then had to throw a party for the squadron. So we've got our inspection teams come in. Uh, most of the team is not cleared for our classified. They can we will generate an airplane for them, and they'll see stuff, and we'll take our bold face, which are not classified. And Saturday night they were having this party, and a couple of us had had uh, called that day, or we got in the thing said, "Don't leave the base," and we went, hmm, "That's kind of strange." Okay, um, well, I'd like to go to because Beal was was about. 50 miles north of Sacramento on the foothills. And so that night at the party, we're kind of talking, saying, you know, it's kind of strange that they didn't want us to go anywhere today. <laughs> and it was like about nine o'clock at night, the colonel in charge of operations comes over to me and, and uh, my navigator and says, uh, Buzz, uh, when you and John uh, get through with church tomorrow morning, why don't you come down to the vault? We got some stuff you need to look at. So we said, oh, okay. What's you know? the vault? What is that? It, it is an area that was very secure. It was literally a vault. When you left it there, there was a, a code, like a safe that you closed, but it was a huge room, rooms, where all the very secret, uh, the communication stuff and the uh, 
maps and things were going to be drawn or and uh, intelligence uh, stuff was was going to be stored. So we got a, I got a call at seven o'clock on Sunday morning. It says get your navigator to get down here. Uh, go direct, go straight to the vault. So I, we go to the vault, and we're, now we're questioning. Okay, where's the problem? Because <laughs> we know there's something going on, and we get in there, we see it's the Middle East, and so John and I were told, "You guys are going, but uh, you're going to be the junior crew." So we had to get a bunch of stuff together. I called my wife about eleven o'clock in the morning and said, "I'll be home in uh, an hour or so, and I'll pick up my bag and uh, I'll be on my way." And uh, great woman, super support. She, you know, I think the only thing she said, "Are you going east or west?" And I said, "I'm going east." So that's that's the extent of it. But uh, while I was there, getting things ready because. John and I were going to fly over in a tanker. The senior crew is going to bring the airplane, a four-hour flight from Beale to Mildenhall, which is about uh, two hours north of uh, London, right near Cambridge. And uh, the same colonel that talked to me the night before calls the house, and my seven-year-old daughter answers the phone, and he says, uh, is your father there? No, my father's not here. Do you know where your father is? No, I don't know where my father is. Can can you take a message? No, I can't. I don't write very well. I can't take a message. <laughs> <laughs> and so he asked her one more question, and I'll stop there. You know, so now John and I, we've made it over to England. We've landed in the tanker before the SR, about 10, 15 minutes before the SR is going to land. We have the special communication, so we talk to the airplane. Everything looks good on the ground. Come in and land. That was Sunday um monday so tuesday afternoon we have to get our tankers they only fly you know regular speeds so some the first set of tankers are in spain the second two sets of tankers are in cairo and the first set of tankers is going to refuel us are going to take off from the same base we're at and the senior crew and uh, John and I, it's like, uh, let's say it's two o'clock in the afternoon, Chris. We said, okay, there's an, the operational meeting because uh, the takeoff is going to be at four o'clock the next morning. And um, we come in and we go, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's the first time the British had ever allowed us to fly out of England into the Middle East and come back. They were always afraid of an oil embargo. Oh, so this fair. this this has historic consequences. So we look there, we see the two-star general in charge of operations for the Strategic Air Command. The deputy ambassador is there. We're introduced to the head of the two British spy agencies, MI5, MI6. There's numerous Air Force senior officers, both Royal Air Force and ours, sitting in on our meeting. And so we're going through all the things and uh the deputy ambassador, he asked me, if you have a, uh, where, oh no, I asked him, I said, sir, if I have a problem, where do you want me to land? And this guy, Chris turned ashen white. He says, what, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I'm not afraid of the defenses, but you know, sometimes airplanes have mechanical problems. Where do you want us to go? You can't go to Israel. You can't go to Saudi Arabia. Turkey doesn't want you. Uh, figure out where you want to go. We don't know. Everything is up in the air. <laughs> so John and I kind of look at each other and said, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure like to get guidance from the State Department. Uh, nobody wanted to take responsibility for it, I'm imagining. Nobody, nobody. And then about that time, either the head of MI5 or MI6, I don't recall, Asked the question of John and I said, well, what do, you, what do your families know about this? You know, this is a pretty interesting life. And so we said, we keep, you know, they know we fly blackbirds, but we don't talk about what we do, you know, and we're, our wives know that we're headed to the east and we're probably at building hall, but they have no idea what we're, what we're here for. About that time, the colonel that had talked to my daughter comes in and says, oh, wait a minute, guys. I had a conversation with your daughter on Sunday trying to find out where you were. And uh, so he goes through this whole thing about asking her. And then the final question that I didn't tell you about at that point, he asked her one more time. 
do you know where your father is? And she, in a whispery voice, bless her, she was about seven years old, my middle daughter. In a whispery voice, Chris, she goes, oh, I think he's out spying. <laughs> <laughs> well, she wasn't wrong. <laughs> the room just burst out laughing. And John and I looked at each other and openly said, John, this may be our last mission. We're, we're compromised. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever knew the Russians were going to be so deep and have a plant that's, in your own that's home. That's exactly right. <laughs> Oh, man, that's great. But then, obviously, you completed the mission, and you were all set. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, there was only one mission, uh, because when they finally reviewed the film in Washington that we had taken, uh, they decided that they had all the information they needed. Now, during the Arab-Israeli War, to kind of give you an idea, 1973, that was long before I was in the program, the Europeans, not just the, the English, but all the Europeans would not allow the SR to fly out of there because they were afraid of an oil embargo. So all those missions, which were pr probably the longest missions the airplane ever flew, 11 hours and 20 some minutes, were all flown from the East Coast of the United States, five or six refuelings into the Middle East and back. Um, and the airplane never landed away. Um, airplanes, the ones they used. Uh, and 95% of the photography that uh, President Nixon used in his uh, military advisors to figure out what was happening uh, came from SRs. Again, because our satellites were not uh, not in orbits that could uh, see the Middle East. Uh, so now they've, they've fallen back now on using the U-2 again a lot. Like the SR-71, we all know, has been discontinued, and they still use the U-2. And it seems like with the amount of uh, resources that you can get from the plane, is it just the fact that the satellites are so good now that it isn't necessary to have anymore? Or why didn't they continue using this program? The It was partly a question of budget. A, a couple things took place. You had the end of the Cold War, and the SR was specifically designed to be a penetrator, which we did at times. And um, it was costing about 85 well, at that point, it was costing about $85,000 an hour to operate the airplane because of the special fuels, the tankers, the maintenance on the ground. I mean, all kinds of things. But, Chris, I think the real reason, and I use the example of my Middle East mission, President Carter, from what I'm told, was in the Oval Office for almost the whole time monitoring my mission. Yet that president did not receive any of the pictures we took for probably 24, 36, maybe 48 hours. The platforms you have out there today, be they space or U-2 or Navy uh, P-8s, there's data links. We didn't have them back then. So you're sitting there, and in the case of imagery, you're getting the imagery probably less than a minute after we take it. Radar, it's got to go through some processing, but we're still talking about less than 10 minutes. So it, you're now able to, as I use the term, you're in the fight. You can make decisions that might be able to help with what's going on at that moment. If you look at back then when we had to download everything and process it, you know, analyze it and then do something, you're looking at history. That's what happened two days ago. You're not looking at what's happening, you know, today per se, right now. Because things can, um, in, in 48 hours, the, the entire situation on the ground can be that's so, right. so different that the intelligence isn't relevant. That's, that's exactly right. But that was the best we could do back that time period. Now, let's fast forward. Now, the U-2 is now programmed to stay around the 2040 or 2050. Every time they talk about retiring it, because it is such, it's economical, but more importantly, it carries about 4,000 pounds of payload. It, it carries some extremely uh, sophisticated sensors that can do all kinds of stuff that because of the height, even a low flying satellite, you're looking at 150 miles above the earth where the U-2 is sitting 70,000 feet. Right. And, and so some of the sensitivity, um, and one of the things today, I retired in 2013, I mean, the SR, we went through high speed, one sweep, collect all the data and go home. The U-2 
and the global hawks and uh, the predators and these others, they go back and forth and they revisit an area, let's say every 10 minutes, every half hour, every two days, not two days, you know, and what the, the sensors are looking for is change because they're trying to figure out, you know, in the old days, we were trying to track tanks on the ground. Today, you may be looking for Toyota trucks, but you're also looking for cultural differences. Are there people moving around or the things going on that tell you that the Taliban or you name it, Al-Qaeda or whatever is is up to something? And you're looking at, at a comparison, and it may be fairly short time. Like in Iraq, the U-2 was being used to uh, detect uh, uh, roadside bombs. And uh, they could do it in such a way took a little more work, but they would look at uh, soil that had been uh, disturbed. Well, there you just think actually, of the resolution they must have on the sensors and cameras that they have now. They're probably, they can tell if your shirt is cotton or polyester at this point. Well, we're tracking people. <laughs> right, individuals, yeah. And uh, there's a program called Gorgon Stare that I worked on that basically it's it's mounted on a predator, and you can follow an individual in a crowd. Now, if he goes into a building, obviously you're out of luck and then you got to try to reacquire them. But our, our earlier systems didn't have the resolution. But now we're at high definition. So when that terrorist comes out of that group, you can identify the different people. And then you can follow that person even if they mingle because your resolution is, is good enough. And see, the SR didn't have that. Now, they brought the SR back for a little bit, but the Air Force... Uh, in, in 95, but the Air Force really didn't, they wanted it retired. And so it never flew any operational missions. It flew some training, it did some stuff, but uh, again, it was retired. And unfortunately, the airplanes were not chopped up. They were all, the ones that existed were sent to museums. There's, uh, of the SRs, there's 19 here in the United States, and there's one over in England at the uh, Royal Air Force Museum at Duxford. Um, you know, I tell we built 32 of them, but we lost 12. Right. But well, you're in a unique you, class of, of men that have, have flown this thing and, uh, but it, everything gets it, put away eventually. It was built with, I mean, it was designed with slide rules. There was no modeling simulation like you have today. Like when the test pilots go out there, I'm not taking anything away from them because there's a lot of things they have to do that they have hazards. But back in those days, it was, Hey, Chris, how about taking the airplane to 2.5 Mach and see what it does? And you come back and your head hurts, you know, and your your helmet's got notches in. He says, hey, boss, it ain't working well. But I flew it at Mach 2 two days ago, and it was fine. Again, that transition I was telling you about, where you start getting area where, where the airplane could become, could become violent. And um, so we lost airplanes. The, my wife loved the airplane because she knew I really enjoyed flying it felt very rewarding the opportunity to do that but also we never had a fatality we had a magnificent rocket ejection seat it didn't matter if you were at eighty thousand feet at mach 3 or if you were one of the back seaters ejected on the runway um that would have been a hell of a ride eighty thousand feet mach 3 eject well yeah it takes you eight uh eight to ten minutes to uh descend down to uh, fifteen thousand feet and at 15,000 feet, the chair kicks you out, and a big parachute opens, and then you descend at a rate of 1,000 feet a minute. So it depends where you're at. It could be 15 minutes if you're at sea level, or if you're in the Rockies, it may be uh, six or seven minutes. You know, it just depends where you where you happen to be, but a very safe system. So and, when you think about these planes that, you know, they get put away, they get taken apart, I think it's interesting that they're, they still fly around the F, the, the 117. They still fly it. It still gets yes. spotted here and there. But one of the main reasons I think these things get put away is, is there like, I've heard of what's called brain drain, right? You get, you just have like the guys that work on them, the guys that designed them, they all kind of retire or they pass away. And then the knowledge of how to repair, fix, use these planes just slowly starts to erode. It does. Because one of the advantages with an exotic system, and I use that term exactly to describe, of an SR-71 Normal Air Force policy would be that if you worked like when I had a fighter squadron, my maintenance people uh, probably wouldn't stay at the particular base for more than uh, three or four years, maybe five at the outside. 
because it took so much to train people, both the pilots and the navigators and all our maintenance, everything else, we froze people. Um, I was just watching a tape. I'm putting together something for a cadet squadron at the Air Force Academy. And one of the guys that I used to work with, uh, Don Campbell, he was associated with the program for 25 years. And, and he is an absolute uh, encyclopedia of uh, maintenance information about the airplane. Uh, and we needed that. And there were certain functions, like when we went into a, a debrief after the mission was over with, it's the first airplane that I'm aware of that all the critical systems were recorded. So in flight, you had over 650 sensor points that were collecting. The, the biggest concentration were in the engine's inlet because that was the hardest thing to troubleshoot. But they come down, you download the information. It was all analog. And they could see in most airplanes, you have to wait for like a fuel pump to fail. In the SR, they would start seeing, because of heat or, or wear, a fuel pump starting to labor. Well, they'd replace it. So our successful missions when we flew operationally were really high because we didn't have a lot of maintenance failures because they were constantly as systems showed stress, they were replacing it. Well, the consequences today, for failure were high. Yeah, well, that's that's true, too. And then you think about today, you and I go flying. Not only are the modern airliners monitoring some many of the critical systems, they're calling ahead. They're saying, okay, this is um, a, a 757 uh, coming from San Francisco to Minneapolis. He's got a problem with this or that. So Minneapolis uh, Airport, if you have this part, have it ready because uh, you're going to need to replace it. I don't ever want to hear that. I want to hear that everything <laughs> on my plane is 100% working all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this, these are some of the technologies that were, you know, I mean, Kelly Johnson was a genius. And I treasure as much my time with Kelly as I did flying the airplane. Because when you had the privilege of talking to Kelly, and he, and he was very pro-Japan flying uh, RF4 because we were and accepted into the SR-71 program, I was waiting for my class date to be paired with my navigator, and it was going to be like in the January time period I would start. But I had been requalified in a T-38, which was our companion trainer. I got notified that the wing commander was going down to Burbank to meet with Kelly and do Johnson and do some other things, and he wanted me to go with him and to plan the mission. So we flew down together in a T-38, and he took me in. Now, this is the fall of 1975, so Kelly has officially retired as the head of the Skunk Works, but he's showing up for work three to four days a week. I mean, he's the Skunk Works is still his baby. He wants to have hands-on as much as possible for the things, even though Ben Rich is uh, now the head of it and working to be the the full replacement. And we talked for a while. Then the wing commander excuses himself, said, you know, Kelly, I'm great to see you. And uh, I was a captain. And then uh, Kelly Johnson and I talked for, uh, say, five or 10 minutes. And then he kind of looks at me and says, uh, Captain, uh, do you know who owns these airplanes? And I said, oh, yes, sir. They belong to the United States Air Force. And he looks at me very seriously and says, no, they don't. They belong to me. They're on loan to the United States Air Force. And you're soon going to find out about the tech orders that we wrote on how you're supposed to fly this airplane. And do you know that everything's recorded? And he said, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I welcome you into the uh, SR-71 and, uh, and the operations and the, the, the bright future you'll, you'll have. But, you know, if you don't follow tech orders, the next time we meet may not be as friendly. So, uh Good luck. It was almost <laughs> wow. like it was almost like putting your finger in your chest and going, uh, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll follow the tech orders." Yeah. And as I mentioned to you earlier, anytime we got a call or a note, like I come back from a flight, and there'd be a note, we take off our spacesuit and then where I was putting my uh, uniform back on, there'd be a note in the locker saying, uh, "Call Kelly." I didn't need to get any permission. I'd go up get on the phone, call down to Burbank, talk to the secretary. I can't remember Mary, Mary Ellen or Mary something. And she'd tell me the, the time and the telephone number on the classified phone, because Kelly wanted to talk to me. He was cleared for whatever we were doing, 
Matter of fact, the mission I flew in the Middle East, I was told before I left England coming home, because I went home on, back on the tanker. The, the senior crew, even to this day, gives me a hard time. They said, the senior crew brings the airplane over and the junior crew flies it for the president. And then the senior crew brings the airplane back to the States. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this particular guy has written five books now, a great friend. But he didn't like the longer missions because he actually came to me because there was supposed to be three of them. And he said, Buzz, how about you flying the first mission? I'll fly the second mission. You fly the third mission, and I'll take the airplane home, and we'll both have flown about the same number of hours. We, we, were, always, we were always thinking about how many hours. I have 777 hours in the airplane. Rich probably has uh, probably over 900. Uh, but anyway, because he was in the program a little, a little longer than I was. So I said, sure. I mean, he was the senior crew. He was uh, calling the shots. So. And it turned, you know, and, and then it turns out there's only one mission. So it goes, well, uh, things happen. Uh, <laughs> so was Kelly a kind of a hard ass then? Or was it just that? He was. Just, was it just once you maintained his respect, it was it was easier until you kind of did him wrong? Uh, no, he was actually uh, a, a pretty hard driver because his his whole 14 managements of, of uh, business that he maintained, he, he surrounded himself with a very talented, tight group, and he gave them the authority and the responsibility. You know, he was the mastermind on what's uh, what any weapon or any aircraft they're working on was going to look like, and then allocated. Like Ben Rich told me, he almost lost his mind uh, because he had the inlet engine combination on the SR, which was really tricky to try to figure out how you were going to make an airplane that could cruise at Mach three and uh, be able to absorb that air in, in a uh, productive manner. So, uh, but many times he was ahead of the people that, that were working with him and, and he would get, get frustrated. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the last thing you wanted was coming into his office and saying, uh, Kelly, we have a problem and have not thought about what are some of the alternatives that you could do to try to overcome it. You wanted problem solvers, not problem discoverers. That's exactly right. Now, you may not know which one is the one to go with. And uh, Pete Law, who was his chief thermodynamicist, uh, told me he'd been fired at least five times. Um, you know, Kelly would throw him out of his office because he didn't come in with a, a, any kind of a, of a solution. And then he'd show up at Pete's desk. He said he'd show up at my desk, you know, 15 or 20 minutes later and then start chewing on me because I'm not working hard enough because I'm still paying you. Uh, but the, the, the guys and a few gals were on the team. There was mostly men at that time period. You got things done. I mean, that was part of the pride that you, you're what you weren't talking about years and years and decades to get something done. You were getting stuff done like the U2 from contract to first flight, I think was nine months and first operations was like, uh, 18 months or something like the F-22. The F-22, I took the vice chief of staff of the Air Force around to look at the one of the initial designs from Lockheed. This is before the competition with Northrop, and that was 1983. It had its first, it was declared operational in 2005. Holy (laughs) shit, man. I had no idea the F-22 dated back that far. Me either. I I was thinking that thing started in the late 90s. Well, see, it was a very, very classified. There were six companies. There was a seventh company, but the chief said, I don't want to go to that company. I said, okay. It was, it was Grumman. He said, they build Navy airplanes. I'm not interested. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but we went around. I mean, that was part of when I, when I was quote, the black world guy, I, I I could mention, Chris, I had $6 billion a year that I was responsible for. I was building the budgets and and supporting them in the Air Force through all the way up through the chief of staff on, on why we needed to do these things. And then once or twice a year, I with uh, a technical specialist on, depending on what we were talking about, would go over to the Congress and talk. The programs had code names. Um, like the 
117 was half blue. Uh, the SR-71 was senior crown. The um, U-2 was uh, senior year. Do these and come up kind of like call signs come up, like something stupid happens? And I'm like, well, I guess that's what we're going to call this program. Uh, there was there was something like the B-2 uh, was called CJ. And, and actually, that was a violation because it was actually after a secretary that we thought very dearly of who, uh, while we were working, died of cancer. And uh, so we named the, the, the thing CJ. Nobody cared. Uh, you've probably heard about the Aurora program. No. Maybe not. Nope. <laughs> nope. Um, the B2 program, ah. there was so much money in it. And I was having trouble hiding it the way we did the with the code names and everything. Well, you just so need I more, created, like I said, you need more golden toilets. I needed, I needed <laughs> more. Uh, so I created a program called Aurora. And Aurora means the, the new dawn, something revolutionary new. Right. And immediately, within about two or three months, all the uh, Aviation Week and all these other people said, oh, it's a replacement for the SR. It's a super secret, something, something like that. And so, because I stuck it in the budget in between the U-2 and the SR-71. I did that on purpose. Right. So they, they didn't, it wasn't until years later that uh, that we finally told them, long after I was gone, that no, Aurora was the the production money for the B-2. Gotcha. I, it just that the line had gotten so big that it was awkward to, to send the budget over uh, that way. But um, so when you have these programs like this and you think of the, the evolution of where we came from, from like the P80 till till now. And obviously I think about, OK, you, you track record of, OK, that existed back in 1983 and, and, and was, we didn't know and we didn't it. know about it. And obviously you, you there's I'm sure there's a ton of things that you can't even talk about. But it's true. <laughs> I just i I wonder how far advanced are we than we think we are? As like a, as a guy looks out and goes, "Wow, that F thirty five is really cool," and we know about it and it's there. There's got to be like all kinds of other things that are parked in a garage somewhere that are just amazing. Is there like a percentage number of how much cooler everything is that we don't know about? Than what we do know about. If just like Chris, we're three hundred percent cooler than you could ever know. Is can you give me like even like a, a random percentage number? Yeah, I'll give you an idea. Um, like the big emphasis now is going to the hypersonic, and the Chinese and the Russians have uh, tested vehicles ahead of us. What's, uh, what speed is hypersonic? When you hypersonic that? is basically Mach five, Mach six, and they're not going to be manned. Because you got tremendous the the thermal equation. Think about something that goes up astronomically. Because for every mock you add, you double, effectively double the temperature of the materials you're trying to deal with because of the skin friction uh, and the other uh, factors on it. And the the kind of the world we looked at, you know, we for speed was really important. And so you had generations of fighters that went up to Mach 2, like the F-15 could go up to uh, 2.5 Mach, although they rarely fly it at that because it's not really efficient at that at that speed, but that's how it was built. And then we get into area where with the SR and then with uh, the F-22, and uh, we reduced the signatures on the, the F-16s and F-15s we have. We get more into the electronics. What can we put in the cockpit? The GPS comes along. What do we have in applications to be able to give that pilot, he or she, more information that's usable? Right. Uh, because um, before, many times you had information coming in, but it's coming in from different sources. So your integrator was the pilot's brain, and that person was also trying to fly an airplane in combat. And so um, I knew guys, I flew night programs, uh, in, uh, Vietnam. I was a photo reconnaissance guy and I had friends that uh, used to tape over the, uh, <laughs> the missile warning lights. Cause they said, it's a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look out the window and see what you said, because I need to keep my night vision so I could see what's going on around me. Right. Uh, because it wasn't integrated. It, you just had a, a a screen there that's all of a sudden it kind of gave you a warning and there was it was a rough order it was coming from a certain direction but today i mean 
think about what's happening with the air, the airplanes. Our airplanes really haven't made any huge advancement. I mean, airliners look about the same. They're more fuel efficient, uh, made from different materials, but they're flying at the same speed. Uh, they're bigger. Uh, they've got more electronics in there so we can do the internet, and watch this and watch that. A lot of the driving on the leading edge technology is coming from our younger people in Silicon Valley and places like that, right. that make, give you the information so that you as a private citizen can maybe live your life better or, or if that's what you want to do. Maybe you want to turn everything off at times, which we all want to do. <laughs> yes. But um, that's kind of the leading edge. And so that the when you get back to the warfighter, that you're integrating from many different types of uh, information sources bringing in, but you're now fusing it. So, and and artificial intelligence is going to be huge. Uh, one of my friends sent me a thing. Um, did you you send me? I'll send it to you, Chris. We had Tucker and, uh, Colonel Tucker Hamilton on, and he's going to be one of our episodes. I think he's actually works with the F thirty five at Edwards. And is, he had a lot to say. He about. is highly engaged with their AI stuff. Oh, it's it's incredible. I've flown the uh, F thirty five simulators, all three of them, um, and those mean people at Edwards. I just really they pick on SR pilots, and I try to tell them I'm from a different age. I'm an analog pilot. I do things sequentially uh, because, I mean, the F thirty five cockpit, it, Chris, is just amazing, and and. The kids, the men and women, boys and girls that are growing up today, that at age two, we hand them a smartphone or something. Their brains, I was part of a group that was working on designing a new fighter cockpit for the 2025 through 2030 time period. And we got chastised because uh, the vice chairman of Joint Chief Staff came in and looked at us and some other ones and said, we got the wrong people in this room. Where's the gamers? Right. You guys are all, you know, you grew up with F4s and mentioned stuff because he, he was a ground, a Marine, bright guy. But, um, and, and so you get an F-35 cockpit. Like I converted an F-4 squadron to F-16s. Back at that time period, the fear was that if you can get that lieutenant or young captain we used to call him Blue Four because he was the fourth guy in the formation. From killing himself, you were going to do well. When we converted to F-16s, the lieutenants were not the problem. The problem were majors because right. they'd come out of an F-4 that was analog, and they're now in an F-16, which is the beginning of a, a very digital airplane plus and those guys that, go backwards you say that the the majors were having trouble but can the for the newer generation can they get into could they get into like a, a tomcat and fly it with the efficiency that they can fly an f-16 no uh, they could fly it but they're they're accustomed to getting information that's been processed more so who's a better pilot do you think in your mind <laughs> uh, uh, the potential for lethality may go with the F-16 pilot or the F-22 pilot because of the information that they have and how they can use it. Because the earlier pilot, we had to do a lot of just trying to figure out and you're trying to balance all the different things you're doing. And, you know, sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that does get in trouble is that I saw some of my younger F-16 pilots and I would chastise them because I said, you're in love with technology. You, you've got to understand basic flight rules. Uh, I took um, a four ship of F-4s to do dissimilar fighter training against uh, a four ship of F-16s. And <laughs> from another base, this was before we converted. And I whipped them. And these guys were just devastated. And I said, we, we sat in the briefing and I told you what I was going to do. And you said you didn't have a problem with it because at that point, the F-16 did not have radar missiles. 
only had infrared missiles, which meant now he didn't have to get behind me like we did. Because in the F-4, our missiles, we had to see the exhaust of the fighter we were going to try to shoot down with a heat-seeking missile. Right. But I and the and the pre-brief, we all sat down in the briefing room and said, what are the rules? He said, the, head, the, the captain uh, opposing me, I was like, a lieutenant colonel, said, oh, you're the old guy. Tell me what. I said, all rules. My All my missiles are good. And he said, oh, sure, you know. Outcome's going to be the same. So we separate ourselves by 50 miles and start coming in. And uh, as we close inside of uh, 20 miles apart, I electronically knock all four uh, with my three wingman or three other fighters. We knock all f- four uh, F-16s out of the sky because we used our radar missiles and they didn't have any. They had to get in close to us in what we call the knife fight and get they didn't have to get behind us. They could see this, the skin temperature on the on the F-4. And boy, boy, you should have seen when we did the debrief. These were a couple of beaten puppies. They said. <laughs> There's ego, man. There's ego there. Sir, you taught us a lesson. I said, yeah. I said, you got you got to respect uh, until you guys get, you know, radar missiles. You're, you don't have full capability. And you got to respect me, even though I'm flying an airplane that's 20 years or more older than you. Actually, well, probably almost 30 years older than you. Uh, on the lethality I bring to the fight and, and my understanding. And I think about what you said when you were talking about the when the SR-71 would the engine would you know backfire and short out or whatever. And I think about how you thought about how your butt felt in the seat. And I and I feel like that's something that from what you're talking about is something that might be disappearing a little bit is that feel I, I that's true um you know our, our senses can can deceive us and that's why you have instruments that's why you learn to do instrument flying because your your body because your inner ear can sometimes think you're doing one thing and actually you're doing something else just the way the the motion was set up but you got to have a sense like I would say all the airplanes I flew, and Chris, I started off, I was a transport pilot. I flew 141s, the largest transport the Air Force had from basically 1968 until 1970, uh, and learned one heck of a lot flying worldwide. But I could feel the airplane. I could kind of tell, and I could do the same thing with the airplanes I flew after that. Um, the, the, there's things that are going on around the airplane that are telling you uh, you know, how good a condition are you in? Are you getting near where you'd find a stall? Or are you doing, you know, something that, uh, and I find that some of the pilots, uh, got so reliant on their instruments and other stuff. They missed those cues that would have told them that they were getting near a danger zone. Right. Um, and end up losing an airplane or, and hopefully not losing their life. But, uh, um, Fortunately, the one of the proudest things I had when I turned when I converted the F four squadron to F sixteens. At that point, we were at fifty thousand hours. Now it was also prior commanders to me, but I'd added in the two years I had the squadron. I think we'd added twenty thousand of those hours, maybe a little, maybe twenty five thousand. But we hadn't had an accident, and um, uh, sister squadron. Uh, both sister squadrons had had accidents. Dropping uh, bombs under flares at night is probably one of the most dangerous things we did in the because it's 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 like um, think about a psychedelic circus kind of thing. The flares are kind of you know burning intermittently. I mean they're not it's not a steady. These, are these source. flares that are launched up so that they can use anti aircraft fire from the ground? Well, they're flares that you drop and um, you use them in combat too. Uh, to highlight the target, so you can see what you're you're dropping on. Sure. Um, but they flicker somewhat, like burning things do, and uh, it's real easy to get disoriented. And um, unfortunately, about a week after I'd taken a group down to the drop under flares, one of them just ran into the ground. And the sad thing was, he'd called, and he'd said. He had said, leader, check your position. So you could tell 
he was confused because the leader was where he's supposed to be. And if he's thinking the leader's not where he's supposed to be, he's not where he's supposed to be. And he and his backseater had their eyes outside the cockpit. They ran into the ground and were killed. Well, we talked so, to the other pilot we talked to, Tucker, uh, Cinco Hamilton, was actually the guy who um, he got into a, a flight accident and he helped pioneer the ground avoidance and collision avoidance systems. And that was something that came out of tragedy that he experienced. Yeah. Well, you know, too, when the F-16 first came out, in an F-4, you could pull a stick all the way back. And, yeah, you're going to get Gs. Uh, I mean, you could get seven Gs, which is really kind of crunches your body. But the G comes on. It's not instantaneous. When we converted to F-16s, when you move that side stick, you can go from one to six Gs in probably a second. And we had guys pass out and we had guys killed because they passed out and they didn't recover in time to recover the airplane. And there was the G loss of consciousness that, uh, and that's why the, the guys, and I, I don't know about the F-22 that may be the same. Uh, they had regular exercise routines at the gym that they had to do to try to, uh, you know, keep their conditioning up so they could be, uh, even though you're wearing a, a G harness, that the onset of, and then you tried to work that you don't just yank that side stick because the airplane is far, has far more capability than your body does. Well, that's for sure. We're made of mush. That's basically, <laughs> we're little bags of meat. <laughs> um, some of the other stuff with the SR, we talked about the cameras. We got, um, we got about five minutes left is, okay, is what well, we got left. I've, I've got to call uh Gary Powers is actually our, my next interview, and that's at four, five, your time. Our tankers were dedicated to us. Um, they, there were almost 26,000 refuelings, Chris, during the life of the program. We know of no time when an SR needed fuel that there wasn't a tanker there. Uh, these men and women were absolutely amazing. Uh, and without the tankers, the SR would have been an interesting footnote in history, but it wouldn't have been effective because to get the range and to get the things we needed, refueling was a, a critical part of our overall function. We had sensors on board that could pick up signals of 300 plus miles in any direction around us. So we could pick up missile sites and, and uh, radio transmitters and radio uh, radars. And because we knew our position so well, we could get cuts electronically on these sites and be able to tell uh, to the national database where these things were located that other airplanes one couldn't see as far because they weren't high enough and secondly um, if let's say that um, the a radar site came up for 30 seconds at a time because they learned if i stay up too long somebody's going to kill me an sr in 30 seconds we'll have gone 17 miles and we'd be able to get 17 or more cuts, and there's an angle difference. If you're in a regular right. airplane, you've gone three and a half miles, so that that angle is not nearly as neat, and you and there's a lot more ambiguity of where that particular radar or missile site or whatever might be located, which is where the the S the SR could really help with. Now the U two can too, but it's it can see further distances, but it doesn't have the speed, so you're still stuck. If it's only up for 30 seconds, you've, you've got an airplane flying at 450 miles an hour, you're going to get maybe a, a two-mile, two-and-a-half-mile top of it, and then you got the arcs coming off that are going down to try to find the, the source of the uh, of the uh, information or the, uh, imp the uh, transmission, per se. Um, trying to think if there's anything else that would be only 85 pilots ever flew the airplane operationally, about 86 navigators. Uh, at any time, there are only 11 of us, so we're not a big. Uh, we. That's basically as elite as an astronaut, really. Yep. And um, we would spend six weeks at a time at Okinawa, come back three months home, then six weeks back over. Sometimes the three months home, we would be over in England for part of that time. So my last year, I had spent 210 days a year. Uh, overseas, because that's where most of the operations came from. I'll tell you just a quick story. Sure. Um, Fred Heisey, the astronaut from uh, Apollo 13, I was escorting him 
a few years back at a museum. If you haven't been there, down in Kansas, outside of Wichita in Hutchison, is the Cosmosphere. It's got the largest collection of Soviet gear outside of uh, Russia. But we were doing an Apollo 13 because the museum has the Apollo 13 capsule. And uh, I think Fred and I were having a beer. And he looks over at me and he says, you know, I'm jealous of you. And I, I said, Fred. I said, I always wanted to go into space. I said, how can you be jealous of me? He said, well, I had my one space flight. How many flights in the SR did you have? I said, eh, about 250. <laughs> you said, I rest my case. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of, it's, it's much shorter for those guys. I think they're, everything they have to do is, is really drawn out and long for that one, one moment. Well, and, and it's years of training. Right. Uh, not, not that we didn't have years of training, but it was followed up by a lot of, uh, you know, flight oper- flight opportunities per se. So, but I, I, Fred and I kid, I kidded him. I said, boy, Fred, it's just a matter of perspective. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, Buzz, really- I, I, I really appreciate you hanging out with me for, for a couple hours. It's been, it's been incredible. My pleasure. It's, it's Good been luck. absolutely incredible. If you need more, um, and I will send you. That technology thing I got that is a combination of VR, AI, uh, language translation, you'll be absolutely amazed. Okay, I'll take a look. And I, I have, did you hear anything back from your buddy that was the, the 117 he's, pilot? He is, and I will pass on your information to him. He's, he's out of town right now. He comes back on Monday night, I think. Sure, well, we can do anything and, in the next week or so. It's no problem. Jet's interested, so I'll, I'll tell Jet to uh, contact you as soon as he gets gets home and uh i know he's uh, looking forward to talking to you you've been incredibly gracious with your time i couldn't thank you enough i appreciate it well good luck to you guys I enjoy talking with you Thanks, take care guys. of yourself bye now bye-bye Bye. an incredible man with an incredible life huge thanks to buzz Gunner. yeah it, you know all i can say is you know it's the world needs heroes you know and it needs uh it needs men that have done great things it needs there needs to be aspirational human beings in the world and buzz is one of them yeah and I, and for I, sure he, he kind of makes me feel uh inadequate or like what what have i done to my he, he with should, my life right we all we all have our role okay we all have our role to play in the world <laughs> okay we cannot all be buzz carpenter right but i think what's important is that you can take it and you go this is what humanity is capable of yeah this is what we can do. The, the people that live and give sacrifices um, almost altruistic, altruistically to their other human beings. And when we can hold those people up and say, this is what the best humanity is to offer, as a collective whole as society, it encourage us, encourages us to try and lead better lives, I right. think, is when we go, wow, you know, this, this is what other people are doing. And it, you know, I think everybody can take uh, inspiration from Buzz and aspire to be heroes even on a daily basis with just the basic stuff we do in our lives. I like that. Um, yeah, we'll see you guys on Friday. Take care.